0: You know, it's 40 years since the hunger strikes. But it still feels very immediate to me. I don't dwell on it, but there are are times you just get just overwhelming moments of sadness. And it can be emotional even just talking about it. Um, I know that sounds silly, but that's the way it is. You know, these are things that deeply affected you. I'd sit on a Sunday afternoon at the dinner table with the family, and I know there's so many families have an empty space, and that we caused a lot of those empty spaces, and that it's difficult to continuously justify what the IRA did when you know that people suffer so much as a result of it. But it is what it is. Uh, we didn't, um, we didn't decide to wake up one morning and become bombers and, and gunmen. I'm Jake McShake-ish, um former uh, Republican prisoner and um, served time um, during the H-block, no-wash protest and the hunger strikes. Uh, I'm currently director of the Gale Top Quarter in West Belfast and um, married to the best woman
1: in the world. They were the IRA men who endured a brutal regime behind the walls of the H-blocks at the height of Northern Ireland's most troubled times. And their protests would eventually lead to the death of ten men, including Bobby Sands. Movies have detailed the horrendous days of the hunger strikes and the violence that prisoners endured at the hands of officers in the damp and freezing jail while poetry and song celebrates their resilience in the face of oppression. But at the heart of it all lay the determination of the Republicans to hold on to their special category status and to refuse to be seen as common criminals. This week in a Crime World special, I talked to Jake McSheekish, who was on the blankets forty years ago, and who was in the cell beside Sands when he embarked on his 66 days of hunger strike. Ended only when he breathed his last on a bright May morning. He tells me of the beatings and scaldings endured behind bars, of the highs and lows of the H blocks, and why refusing to take on the status of a criminal, was a cause worth dying for. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. And very simplistically, they had decided that you were going to be, you were criminals. Criminals. You were going to wear a prison uniform and you were going to adhere to prison rules prison rules, and prison life. And you were absolutely adamant that there was no way. I mean, it was, it was adamant, never going to, an to happen. Extent, It was never going to happen.
0: Never going to happen. I think that it was probably best articulated by Kieran Nugent. Uh, Karen was, sh- was shot and badly injured when he was 15 by loyalists. He, was, um, he wasn't involved, and when he recovered, he joined the ranks of the IRA. And Kieran went into prison. He was the first person, just happened to be the first person sentenced. And they brought him up to the H-blocks and told him to put the uniform on. He was beaten about, and Kieran simply said, If you want that uniform on me, you're going to have to nail it to my back. He was just determined, and that that was... There was no great strategy about how we would approach it. Mm. We simply knew that we wouldn't wear the uniform, we wouldn't do prison work, and beyond that, we didn't know
1: how things were going to pan out. A lot of us have seen, through dramatisation, what went on, and the violence and the beatings and the horrendous conditions. Do they do it any justice? They, They
0: do come close, but I think the one thing that... The one thing that's missing in in all of those, yeah, the brutalities there, yes, that that all happened. It it happened on a a huge scale. Uh, It it was ongoing. But the thing that it misses out for me is the absolute gut-wrenching terror of a naked 18-year-old listening to that unfolding. That's where the real damage is done. That's the real trauma. It's listening to someone else being beaten and having no ability to do anything about it. And it's also the randomness of the violence. They would just pull a door open at random and beat someone, and that meant you could never relax. You were always tuned into every single sound. You were always on edge. And it was that psychological underland torture, I think, that did most damage
1: to people. Where did they come up with the waterboarding anyway? Where does that
0: originate from? The Brits actually used it against the Mau in Kenya. It was one of the tortures in Kenya. Only the, the way they did it there was in a witch's chair, mm. dunked on them, in their river. And then they just refined it. Why do we need to take them to a river? Put them in the chair, you can do the same thing. It was just the same
1: method. And we were having a we were having a clinical discussion about what it was like there a minute ago, but it's um, you're dunked, you come up gasping for air, towel full, full of, full of water sodden over towel face. over your face. So while you're gasping, you are just breathing in. You're breathing in water droplets,
0: but you actually feel you're sucking in water.
1: So you feel as if your lungs are filling with water. Yeah. You feel as if
0: you're drowning. You're just panicking. Ah, you're drowning. That's what you are, and you're pinned down to the chair. I managed to wriggle free from one of them and just you just like gasping on the floor because you've been you're immersed in water and you're holding your breath. So you say to yourself, Oh, hold the breath, hold the breath, hold the breath. And then when you're panicking and about to start breathing, they pull you up and you you're gasping for forever, but the towel goes straight over your face and they're pouring water over you.
1: And how long did that last for?
0: I got three sessions of it, three separate Sessions, so I suppose it, in all, it's probably no more than what he holds your breath or underwater two minutes, mm. and then when you're out another minute of that. But I mean, it, it feels like
1: it feels much longer. It just seems horrendous. And when you were waterboarded when you were 17 years of age, what was it for? Um, to break me. To I was being interrogated, um, and
0: it was just one of the methods that they used to break prisoners during interrogation um, the the other one was that they would make a squat with your arms out mm. and hold that squat position for as long as you could Man, once you fell the battery and you were put back onto on the squat and then spread eagle against the wall with the fingertips mm. and then just generally slapped about that was the interrogation methods when I would go into any interrogation, the minute I would sit down, I would visualise walking into my mother's house, so I'd note the colour of the door, the shape of the windows, the shape of the Yale lock, the knocker on the door, and then I'd walk through and picture the holy water front at the, the side of the door, what co- what shape it was, and every time they broke into my concentration, I went back to the front door and began walking through the house again. So it was just constantly um, gone through that routine of shutting them out. It is easy. I mean, you can just concentrate totally. It doesn't matter what is happening around you. You know, I spent um, five years in the H-blocks, but I didn't spend an awful lot of time there because I would get up in the mornings, I'd read the Bible, I'd then walk for a bit, and then I would decide to follow the crows as they went out the farmer's fields and mental map of making my way up through... Uh, the what we call Gypsy Lane past O'Hare's Farm up onto the mountain. So I would just walk in my mind. There's no limit on your freedom, uh, provided you have the imagination to take yourself out of where you are. Mm. I always had the ability, um, even as a child, to just um, immerse myself in thought and, and take myself off. And I got better at it. As I got older, I learned to do it. It became necessary to do it. You know, if you've um, three branch men around you screaming you and slapping you in the face and um, just sitting there isn't an option, you, you have to get yourself out of that space and you have to have a goal that keeps you going um, so that you don't start listening to what they're saying. You don't, you, you hear, obviously, you physically hear what they're saying, but you you don't. Um, do you ever forget their faces? No, in general no. Um, I can still name every screw who was involved in torturing me. I can still name every RUC man, although I never have publicly. I've never named any of them. Um, I don't think it's right to personalise it. They, um, like me and like everybody else, go to bed with their own thoughts, so... During the H-blocks and the hunger strikes, I you would have moments where you would see the humanity even in your tortures. Uh, I remember when we got scalded, they decided to um, scald us in 1979. They began the, the first door and the, the wing opened and you heard all this clattering and then a scream and the, the screws were shouting, stay still, stay still. And a guy called Jerry Dowdall and then there was this splash, and Dowdall screamed at the top of his lungs, it's scalding, the water's boiling. And then they just opened door after door, scalding. And people threw it at you. Through buckets of water. So they came to my cell and they opened it, and one of them said, Uh, you're gonna have to wait your turn, we're keeping you to the end. You're the man giving the orders in here, and we're gonna have a special treat for you. So they, they worked their way around the whole wing, and it, it, it's actually worse than the um, ordeal that you go through, listening the men screaming, listening the men suffering. It's just, you're impotent, you can't do anything. So the three screws they landed down at the door, one of them opened it and he says, uh, our friend's way up to boil up some water freshly for you, we want you scalded. So all the time I've been sacking myself up, saying I'm not going to react, I'm not going to let them see um, that... They've succeeded in in breaking me. So I pulled the blanket tight around myself and stood in the middle of the cell. And they opened the door, and one of the screws stepped forward and said, I want this bastard scalded, right? Strip him. So they stripped the blanket off me and threw the water, and I screamed like Ned Flanders out of The Simpsons. (laughs) Despite all the, you know, I'm not going to scream. The pain was unbelievable, you know, and I just stood there. And I could physically feel the blisters raising on my back and my neck and my thighs. The door closed, they went away, and the next thing a screw came back, one of the ones who had done the scalding. And he opened the door and he threw a tube of germline on the floor, uh, antiseptic cream, and he handed me um, pliers, navy-cut cigarettes, and he said, put that on you and have yourself a wee smoke. You deserve it after what you've been through. And I, I just stood for a while going, is he schizophrenic or, you know, and then I just went, no, that's him protecting his own humanity. He's just done something that he can't square and to um, retrieve his humanity, he's, he's giving me cigarettes and germany. So
1: he could sleep that night, presumably. So he could sleep. The human body seems to be able to take quite a lot. It does. Uh, I
0: learned that in the H-blocks that you wake up, freezing, cold, you're on a a sponge, which is soaked with urine, you have a couple of blankets over you, you you sweep the maggots out of your bed, out of your hair, and you get up and read your Bible and go for a walk. That's your reality. You look at women survivors of, of domestic violence, they're able to go through that. You know, they're able to function as mothers, they're able to function as human beings, and yet they're under a tyranny. From a brute, and yet they can, they can manage it, and uh, so humanity is very resilient. The human spirit is very resilient, and it needs some central belief uh, to sustain you. I think that mothers suffering domestic violence must sustain themselves by the need to protect their children. Prisoners. Um, political prisoners sustain themselves with their beliefs and ideals. So, yeah, the human spirit's amazing.
1: Were you able to feel sorry for yourself within that all-male sort of environment? Were you able to sometimes, did you get the worst beating and were you able to sort of... No
0: sympathy. There was no sympathy. <laughs> None. The um, the macho um, response to everything is dry your eyes, get on mate, suck it up, catch yourself on. So a lot of it was black humour. We dealt with it through black humour, but um, there was no, there was no. Um, you couldn't allow sentimentality or weakness. And because that 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 would be destructive, mm. so you had to maintain uh, solid discipline. You had to maintain. Um, now sitting on your own in the cell at night that was a different matter. Mm. I remember the lowest, my lowest personal moment when we thought that the hunger strike. Had been successful, and Bobby was negotiating with the governors, and two of our wings moved into fresh wings with furniture, and we were trying to resolve the hunger strike. Bobby was genuinely trying to see was there any wriggle room that would allow, but um, Hilditch was was rock solid. wasn't happening. Put on your prison uniform, go to work, by the rules, then we'll talk, and that wasn't going to happen. So, when it became obvious, our clothes were brought up in January. Um, 1981, and it was absolutely freezing that night, and the clothes weren't allowed in, and that would have been a symbolic indication that they wanted the resolve the thing, so they they didn't do it, and the order was given to rack the two wings, so we racked the wings, later on at night, and the screws arrived, and we were beaten out in the prison vans naked. They took us up to H6. And they threw us under an empty wing, which had just been cleaned, so there were puddles of water on the floor. And um, it was bitterly cold, and we waited on the bed and coming. didn't come. And so we managed to struggle through to the next morning, and the breakfast was coming. Oh, God, they'll, th- they'll throw the bed in, the bed and and we'll get blankets. No. Lunchtime came. No, there's still no blankets. I was just completely frozen. I was feeling sorry for myself. And then the dinner came and someone shouted, it's chips and corned beef. And I went, oh, great. And the screw handed me a plate and there was nothing but a square of corned beef on it. And I just, I just my heart just sank. I just, It, it was the, the last, oh, I, I sat on the floor and the door reopened, and the screw says, Don't be feeling sorry for yourself. There's a couple of chips under the corned beef. It's not that bad. And he closed the door. And I, I could have cried. I just could have cried. And I just sat. I don't know how long I sat on the, the bitumen floors, absolutely freezing. And this was just. And I went, Fuck it, it's corned beef and chips. And I ate the corned beef and chips and got up and started walking to get a bit of heat into my bones. And then at eight o'clock, the bedding and came, and sure we were back to back to normal.
1: So where are we now? Can you describe this? Is, this is um,
0: the local memorial garden in the middle of the Falls Road. Uh, it's dedicated to all the people from this area who lost their lives during the struggle. You go around; these are people from the immediate D Company area. These are ex-prisoners who have died. And these are the members who were killed in active service. And, um, to and like the common culture on the wall. And I'm going to move I had done a whole thing. I'm going to talk to him. i a going to talk to him. I'm going to talk This plaque is, uh, erected by the Falls Cultural Society. Uh, in the name of the people of the Falls Road and it is dedicated to those brave uh, volunteers from D Company, 2nd Battalion of IRA, who gave their lives for the freedom of the gale. This road, the Falls Road, the house just up here was, um, that was where the Falls Road post office was in 1916. And the postmaster came out on Easter Monday and burnt all the stamps with King George's head on them. And they closed down the post office. And there was they weren't allowed to have a post office on the Falls Road until 1998 after the Good Friday Agreement. <laughs> it
1: sounds so ludicrous and ridiculous, all these things, doesn't it? But really
0: that's, that's the way it was.
1: Tell me about this.
0: That's just the... Uh, Hits the shape of the hits block, and it records the days on which the hunger strikers died. There's Bobby Sands, obviously at the top. Francis Hughes, Raymond McCreish, Patsy O'Hara, Joe McDonald, and then Martin Hurson, Kevin Lynch, Kieran Doherty, Thomas McElwee, and Michael Devine, and then Michael Coughlin and Frank Stagg in the middle, who both died. Well, Michael Gahan died in. Parkhurst and Frank Stagg died
1: in Wakefield Prison. They were both from Mayo. Did you know all the others, Jake? I knew them all, yep. Knew them all. And when was
0: this mural put up? That mural was first painted in 1981. That's been touched up and redone a number of times, but it was originally put up in 1981.
1: It's probably one of the most famous walls in Belfast. It is, it? yeah.
0: There's been so many announcements and mm. historic moments and press conferences.
1: People photographed under here. Two. It's Mom, it's yeah. a tourist attraction now. Well, it is. It yeah. is indeed. And,
0: you know, if you look, what it does is it describes him. He's a poet. He's a gale He's a revolutionary. He was an MP. He was mm-hmm. an IRA volunteer. Mm-hmm. And he wanted the laughter of our children to bear revenge. Well, he was some pup now, was he? he was. Oh, a, he, he was some boy. First time I seen Bobby, he was walking across the yard to the, the study hut when I came into the cage. He had uh, long hair, Bush hat on his head, he had a guitar slung over his shoulder, a pair of jeans and a red and white jumper on him and he was just sauntering over to the study hut to play guitar um, he loved music um, we had a great great collection of music in the cages uh, someone discovered that you could join the Britannia music club and get uh, your first uh, set of albums free and then you had to pay for the rest so obviously we were in prison but we wrote out joined the Britannia club and <laughs> everybody got their four free albums oh, and no lost. We had a huge collection of, of music, so people um, people entertained themselves. You know, Bobby was also very intense at the stage. He, he was still young. I mean, I imagine Bobby in 75, he'd been, what, 19? Um, but he was still very um, intense. He was a writer. He was writing um, stuff for, on Foblacht, Republican News. Uh, he was a thinker. He, I remember getting a copy in Cage 11 of his Buntus Touskantia, and he had wrote inside it, uh, Blaine Shock to Wakuig, Blayne uh, 75, uh, the year of freedom. And that was what the old leadership were saying. They were saying that the talks with the British government were going to bring about freedom. And that changed very rapidly because we could see them built in the H-blocks.
1: Mm. And some of us it's were saying, from the cages.
0: you could see the cranes yeah. built in the H-blocks. And we were saying, well, if they're about to withdraw, what are they or building down there? Yeah.
1: Did Bobby Sands look out after you when you went in first to prison? Well, He was a good older, was he? No,
0: Bobby was, he knocked about with a short strand, man. He was very close with the way that worked in the cages was that you had groups that you would stay within. So I was with the Town guys, from being from Andersonstown. We, we knew each other well. We were yeah. in the same cage. Went to lectures together. But um, I got to know him a lot better during the H-blocks. And he was an argumentative get. <laughs> he, he, uh, I remember when we were in H-6 and we were looking out the windows and there were birds packing about in the yard, and him and Ginty Lennon from Andy Town were arguing. And Bobby says, Do you see the yellow And Ginty says, They're not yellow hammers, that's a goldfinch. And Bobby says, It's not, it's a yellow hammer. Ginty says, How do you know it's a yellow He says, Well, you always get yellow hammers beside water. And Ginty says, Where's the fucking water there? And Bobby says, It's the other side of the wall. And Ginty says, How do you know? He says, Because there's yellow in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you couldn't beat that argument. That's well, <laughs> it, you couldn't beat it. Um, the 9th of March, 1981, it was Bobby's birthday. He turned 27 that night. And I was in the role of shouting messages across between the wings and the blocks. And we had shouted across to the opposite wing, got up after the dinner plates and all had been cleared. And I shouted over and it was Sparrow divine. So we exchanged all the messages. And right at the end, Sparrow says, uh, Roda Wine Ella. And I says, Go right, ahead, one more thing. And I said, Go ahead. And in one voice, all the lads in that wing shouted, Breichla, son of Bobby, Happy Birthday, Bobby. And uh, then Jimmy Teapot and Hector McNeil started MC in the concert. Great crack the two, we we're always trying to get one over each other and the first song was Bick um, McFarlane, and he sang Joni Mitchell's Big Yellow Taxi. Shamey um, Kelly sang a Neil Young song. Um, I, for the life of me, don't know why, but I picked Skibberine, which was a funeral dirge. And uh, after taking abuse, Hector and Teapot called somebody for something a bit more uplifting, so big Tom McElwee got to the door, and Tom couldn't sing to save himself but he put the two pot lids down on the floor and danced. And uh, then he recited a poem about the the flowers growing in the mist coming in off the sea, and it was a lovely poem. And then Bobby got up and spoke. Um, he said he was OK. He was 60 kilograms that day. He was feeling in good form. He had written to his sister and a few other friends, and he... Um, he said that look I've got the 27 um, years of age he says I might die he says but um, the republic in 1916 will never die he said onward to the republic and the liberation of our people and uh, then he sang Back Home and Derry it was a song he'd written himself and we all joined in the chorus and for a a very few hours, we were able to get outside of ourselves and outside of the cells and just have a, a brilliant time singing with our mates. But there was that underlying sadness that we knew um, he would be dead. He would be dead very soon. So um, I was convinced from the outside of the hunger strike Bobby would die, as was he. He wasn't thinking in in narrow terms. He was thinking about the tortured history of our country and and our relationship with our neighbour and how that could be ended. And he he felt that to allow them to criminalise the Republican struggle, to delegitimise resistance uh, to their occupation, couldn't be allowed to happen. And if he had to step forward and die, then he was going to do that. And he was very resolute by, by the time he was moving to the hospital he was um, he was weakening you could see he was weakening and um, he recorded a diary for 17 days and after the 17th day it was just too much for him he couldn't he couldn't record it anymore and he began to deteriorate and you know so I didn't he was relatively healthy the last time I saw him um, and then Pick went up the same in the prison hospital shortly before he died, and Beck was saying when he went into the cell, Bobby was blind, um, he couldn't see, um, his voice was very weak, and he heard the, the, the footsteps. And however, he sensed that it was Beck, and he says, "Is that you, Pick Akara?" Like, Beck says, "I oh, says I'm blind, mate. Come over. I can't. I can't see you." And. Um, Bix says that he um, he had a, a wire cage over his bed to keep the sheet off him um, he was dead from death and uh, he put his hand on Bix and just says tell the boys I'm alright they're not going to break me and uh, so yeah it was it was an awful it was a horrendous year 81 was a rough winter, and uh, then it began to, it began to brighten uh, late March. Um, April was mild. Um, we were very subdued. Um, there wasn't the usual crack. People weren't up singing out the doors. We weren't. And to me, the background noise of that summer is the, the dirge and the drone of the Rosary and Irish because all the Catholics in the wing would pray the rosary twice a day during the hunger strikes, and um, I would just lie in my cell, and you would hear this. It it was almost mantra-like. And this, you know, you could hear the words and understand the words, but it just sounded mantra-like. And the... The amount of prayers that were said um, reinforced my agnosticism. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe. Um, Bobby Sands was a believer. He 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 actually writes in his diary and says, uh, "I might be being presumptuous, but I think it me and God are getting on all right these days." You know. So he had that. I didn't. Um, other people had that religious faith and. Um, to me, death was death. When you died, uh, there was there was no coming back. The best you could hope for that you would fertilise a good tree or a nice flower bed, but um, it, in a way, it was a comfort for people. But for me, it's it's the background noise to death. And um, also, you had the screws who were just mopping. And there was one in particular. There were four guys out of our wing. There were 40 people in a wing. There were four guys out of our wing went on the hunger strike. So that's one out of every 10. And uh, the screw used to come down. He was a particularly obnoxious guy. And he would bang the grills with his baton every morning. And he'd say, H3, bring out your dead. You know, you'd hear this. So... We didn't enjoy that summer. We didn't have the usual crack. You know, when spring started to turn to summer, you could see the odds break a light in the yard. The birds would be changing. There would be um, bird song. There would be crack out the windows. People would be having conversations, but the hunger strike period was subdued. You know, looking back now, they're all dead far longer than they lived but they're very much alive because what happened in 1981 changed the entire course of Irish history. They succeeded in demolishing British attempts at criminalising the Republican struggle, they reinvigorated the Republican movement, they gave birth to a huge cultural revival that is still working its way through um, this society, and none of them were better people. They were all very open individuals. They all thought, in hopeful terms, they um, changed the direction of the Republican movement and ultimately led to the uneasy peace that we have. You know, none of that would have happened. If the British had have succeeded in criminalising the IRN, demoralising the struggle in 1976, what would have happened was that it would have simmered onto the surface and erupted again at some later point. But what they did when when they brought the Republican message to an international audience, they created the conditions which allowed for an end game in Ireland and which allowed Mm -hmm. us to move out of conflict and towards peace. We didn't choose to go to war. War came to us, and you had a choice. You either got up and stood up on your feet and put your boots on, or you knelt down and cowed down. And I was never going to cow down, and Bobby Sands was never going to cow down, and thousands like us weren't going to cow down. We knew that the anachronism of the northern state was rotten to its core, that it was irreformable that it was being held uh, on a life support machine, of British military occupation. And we dedicated ourselves to fighting that occupation. And once you make those decisions, uh, they're not made lately, and um, you you have to continually examine yourself. You have to continually... Because armed struggle is not a right. You, you must weigh up all the circumstances that face you and make a moral decision. And that moral decision must be based on there is no alternative at this point to armed struggle. But the minute you get to a situation where the objectives that you're seeking to achieve can be achieved by democratic and peaceful means, then it's your moral duty to do that and they argue for that. So conflicts are never one-dimensional. Things happen things escalate. It's easy to start conflict, but it's extremely difficult to, to extricate yourself from it. It's extremely difficult to stand off from the maelstrom of conflict and say, okay, what do we do? How do we move this thing forward?
1: And those debates were, were held all the time in the H blocks. And that face-to-face conflict within the prison that was going on between yourselves and the prison officers, so outside, prison officers were being murdered were being killed yeah and they were presumably as a collective their aggression was intensifying oh, every absolutely. time one of them was, oh, was absolutely
0: I mean it, it um, one of the worst wing shifts we got was after Governor Miles was killed and um, he was um, senior governor in, in the blocks at the time the IRA killed him and <clears throat> The morning after his death, the um, we could hear the screws gathering in the central part of the H block, and they all had riot shields and battons. and the place was totally silent, because everybody knew that it was coming. And then all we heard was... <coughs> the batons building up, and then the feet stamping, and then they get on the crescendo, and they were shouting, kill the bastards. So they came down the wings. Um, you were taken out two at a time. Um, when it came to my turn, I was dragged out of the cell. Two arms pulled apart, ran up the middle of the corridor there was a four mega top table. There, I slammed into that. One of them grabbed my hair. Two of them stood in my feet. One with a, a rubber glove probed my anus, and then they flipped me head over heels over the table. And when you rose. There was a, a phalanx of screws making you run the gauntlet. So it was beaten from one wing to the other. And um, that just went on methodically until they'd moved all the prisoners from one wing to the next. And then we all got up and sung A Nation once again at the doors, just defiant. And I remember people, well, when... We, we, in recent years, people began to talk about tribunals and the torture and the hate blocks, and I've always resolutely refused to, to go to them. I won't attend any of them. I don't want to give evidence against anybody that tortured me. I don't want anybody who tortured me to go to jail. And I always, when I'm probed on why not, why why do you not, I said, well, look, we were killing these people. We were blowing up their towns and cities. We were shooting their policemen and their soldiers. What did we expect? Did we expected we were going to treat us with kid gloves. I wouldn't have done it. I've often thought if I were a man in my 20s or 30s, could I have scalded a naked 17-year-old? I don't think I could have. But I don't know, because I wasn't in that situation. In any conflict situation, um, People are doing things that are not normal. They're not something that you would ever contemplate outside of the context of of, um, conflict. And you have to harden your heart. You have to um, diminish your own humanity, but then you must also have ways of Reconciling that, you have to have a way of um, justifying to yourself what you're involved in and and what's happening. And I learned quite early on that when I was being brutalised in the H-blocks, I, in a vague kind of way, realised that I would only diminish myself if I allowed myself to hate, that if I allowed this to become personal, that it would diminish me, that um, hatred is a, um, a cancer that eats you, It doesn't eat, eat anything else. I mean, the famous Confucian one, that uh, acid uh, does more damage to the vessel that contains it than it does the anything upon which it's poured. One of my daughters, the youngest daughter, she watched the film *Hate 3 and she came in in tears and said, Daddy, did they do that to you? And I said, yes, she says, why did you never tell me? And I said, well, why would I? Why would I burden you with my crap? You you should be out having fun and dancing and drinking and having a bit of crack. Mm. Not worrying about what they did to us. And really, that's probably what you did it for anyway, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Mm. I mean, the, the... Bobby Sands wrote a lot, but I think the most insightful thing he wrote was that our revenge will be the laughter of our children. And that's how he looked at it. You know, that... It wasn't about revenge. It wasn't about evening scores. It was about bringing about freedom, justice and equality. And the output of that would be the laughter of our children, it would be that children would be able to live without conflict, without sectarianism, without hatred and without oppression. And there's nothing better. When I I sit with my five grandkids, up on the mountain, we're out for a walk and we're all talking in Irish and they have no notion that it's any different. This is their life, they're they're content, they're happy. Um, Kids now have no sense, even though it's still, there's still a non-spoken conflict. Kids now have no sense of limitations. They're much more outgoing. They go wherever they want. There are no no no-go areas. I couldn't have left this area when I was young. I mean, you took your life in your hands even going to the city centre. I noticed more kids mixing than they ever did. You know, kids are, they don't have the same hang-ups that our generation did. We knew that we were in our place and we're being kept in our place. They have no sense of that. And education is a huge, um, advancer. You know, I always was, um told that education, 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 that's that—that's the road to not only freeing yourself but freeing everything around you. You know, when you look at the lack of leadership within unionism, you look at the lack of educational achievement of a young, young loyalist, it breaks my heart. You just want to be able to do something, the impact on that, but it has to come from within, it has to come from the unionist leadership they have to stop telling these kids they're coming through your culture you're finished it's all over the protocols out and you know because all that does is wind kids up in the sense of victimhood and then someone puts a petrol bomb in their hand what are they going to do they're going to throw it mm. whereas you should be making them proud of what they are giving them some sense of of themselves and Encouraging apprenticeships and
1: apprenticeships. And a place here a in place. the middle of, this is, of history here this in Belfast. Mm.
0: I mean, like, no one, you know, no matter who you are on this island, we all know that the population of this island isn't going to radically change. Now, thankfully, we're getting more um, fresh citizens from abroad and we're getting a more eclectic mix of people and it's brilliant and it's enriching and it's, you know... Unionism needs to find its place in that and stop looking to, an England, that doesn't give a damn about them. I always say it as, it's like the snow on the roof. You know, when the thaw starts, it's imperceptible. But the change is all happening there below the surface. And then it doesn't come away in drips and drabs. It falls in one big collapse. And that's the way this place is going to go. Unionism is going to reach a tipping point and then it'll be irreversible. So my biggest hope would be that from a position of relative strength, they would negotiate their place among the rest of us. I think that freedom's overrated in a lot of ways because a lot of us just go through life and don't absorb it. You know, you don't, um, you don't smell the Hawthorne hedge and just go, isn't that wonderful? Isn't it just, isn't it great to be alive? Isn't it great to be able to walk here? We're usually going, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen at work. You know, we absorb ourselves with unimportant minutiae when what we should be doing is living.
1: When you were sick recently, when you had COVID and you thought you were going to die, were you going to die peacefully?
0: Oh, absolutely. I, I, know, I have no fear of death. I mean, I think that um, death's so natural. It's such a part of life. Um, I don't, I don't know what I'll be like on my deathbed. But um, when I thought I was on my deathbed, I was very calm. I got pen and paper, and I wrote out my last wishes for my family, um, which I left with a, a relative. And when Elphans they die, they'll be given that. Um, But there are no high Hopefully it'll just slip off Mm. quietly and um, fertilise a nice cherry tree or something.